You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Gas prices cannot remain where they are uh, because there won't be enough supply. Um, you're only going to have the lowest cost supply you know, fields in the U.S. producing at current prices, and that's just not enough gas to meet even our domestic demand, let alone exports um, to it via LNG. So gas prices have to recover. Um, and so at current prices, I think that's a huge opportunity over sort of the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. Hi guys, my name is Brian Lenny of Mining Star Education and Junior Stock Review. Today with me, I've Elliot Yu, the founder and chief analyst at the Capitalist Times. Elliot, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, you're new to the show, so I think it would be uh, good to start off with an intro about yourself and your newsletter. Sure. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I've been uh, involved in the financial newsletter business now for about 24 years, um, and I've been covering the energy market specifically for about 20 of those years. Uh, first, um, as an analyst for other publications, uh, then I created a an energy-focused newsletter way back in uh, 2004. Uh, and so I've been covering the sector at great depth uh, ever since. Uh, so everything from uh, mainly traditional oil and gas companies, but we also look at uh, uranium companies, uh, nuclear power, um, pipelines, you know, midstream assets for oil and gas. So we really cover the gamut in um, our energy-focused publication. Um, everything oil and gas from producers to um, down refiners to, to midstream. Excellent. Um, you know, currently WTI oil price is sitting around $70 a barrel. You know, it's about right. $50 off from a year ago. Uh, in your view, what are the factors that have driven the oil price downwards over the last year? The oil market oil prices are really the, a function of, of three fundamentals, right? Um, there's uh, supply, demand, and price, um, and they're all interrelated. Um, so, you know, when, this, when the price of oil is low, when the price of WTI is low, um, it encourages demand. Uh, because the lower oil prices are, uh, the more consumers want to use of it. Uh, and um, it also discourages supply um, because low prices make it less profitable for companies to produce oil. Um, so what we're seeing right now is really just the interplay of those two forces. Um, coming out of uh, 2019, 2020, you know, we had the COVID uh, lockdowns and uh, economic um, well, travel restrictions in 2020. Obviously, that was terrible for oil demand. Uh, oil prices collapsed. Um, but more important than uh, the demand side of the equation, longer term, was the supply side of the equation. Um, the collapse in prices caused a shift in probably the most destabilizing force in oil markets of the last 15 years, and that's U.S. shale producers. Um, so U.S. shale output had been growing at a very rapid pace from sort of 2011, 2012, all the way up through um, early 2020. And uh, it was very difficult for uh, any other forces to have an impact on, on the price of oil. Um, Saudi Arabia flooded the oil market in 2014 with excess supply, drove down the price of oil, and it had an effect for maybe four or five quarters in terms of U.S. shale production. Um, the shale producers just, every time the price of oil turned up over that period, they started drilling more aggressively. We saw this surge in supply. Um, and so what we saw coming into last year was uh, the, the, the lagged effect of that. Um, so demand started to recover uh, as COVID lockdowns eased, and supply did not recover. Um, the U.S. shale producers switched their strategy from sort of growth at any price. Um, anytime the price of oil went up, they produced more. 
um, sort of a glut, a, a, a prolonged or, or secular glut of oil, if you will. And um, they switched to more of a cash flow strategy. Um, so uh, your big U.S. shale producers, uh, and it's the larger players that survived all this mess uh, the last 10 years. Uh, and uh, those companies are really targeting cash flow. So they're not, you know, just because the price of oil goes to 85 doesn't mean they're going to increase their rig count um, and drill more aggressively. Um, they're only going to drill um, enough to uh, have their cash flow steady um, to higher. And then they use that free cash flow to uh, basically return capital shareholders, dividends, share buybacks, paying down debt, et cetera. Uh, so we have this supply, uh, a restrained supply response uh, in 2021, 2022. And then, of course, the Russian-Ukraine conflict caused a psychological boost, mainly to crude oil prices. A lot of people felt that you know Russian supply would be interrupted by that. Um, in fact, it, it wasn't. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, uh, Russian oil production actually increased um, in early 2022 and all the way up till um, through, through the rest of the year. Uh, Russia simply shifted its exports from you know, places like Europe, that put sanctions on um, to China and India, um, and you know what I think has happened now uh, is that uh, the, the number one factor that's causing the recent decline in oil prices is the demand side of the equation. People, investors, companies are very concerned that if we do have a recession here in the U.S., and indeed if it's a global recession, that that's going to cause a hit to oil demand, and that's going to bring, bring prices down. Um, typically, in a recession. You know, oil prices, whether you look at WTI or, you know, Brent, the international oil benchmark, they do come down. Go back and look at, you know, 2001, pretty mild recession. Oil prices came down uh, quite a lot, uh, 50%, as much as 50%. Again, of course, in the 2008 collapse. Um, and we again saw it in the COVID lockdown recession. Um, and so there is that concern out there. And I think you can see that playing out, that it's really a demand problem, a headwind the market faces, because... The supply picture actually looks really solid. Um, you know, you look at it, um, OPEC is being very restrained in terms of their production. Uh, in fact, just this last weekend, um, you know, Saudi Arabia unilaterally said they're going to cut an additional million barrels a day of supply starting in July, uh, at least for one month, and I think probably longer than that. You know, you look at OPEC's own projections for supply and demand in the latter half of this year. You look at IEA, um, you look at pretty much any private projection out there. And the oil market looks to be tightening up considerably in the second half of this year because uh, most people in the world live in the Northern Hemisphere. Now, so Q3 and Q4 are the period of peak demand for oil. Um, so demand naturally rises seasonally. And at the same time, supply is very restrained, whether you look at shale, OPEC, or Russia. Um, so I think that um, the main issue right now is the demand side of the equation, concerns about the demand side of the equation. And that's why you're seeing supply effects, such as what we saw from Saudi Arabia over the weekend, not have too much of a prolonged impact on oil. You know, they've managed a, a short, you know, 10 or 12% pop when they made a surprise cut uh, back in early April. This latest announcement had, you know, it was like a half an hour special. Um, the following morning, oil prices opened higher, but then they actually closed pretty much where they started the day and then sold off again um, immediately after that. So I do think it's a demand side uh, a factor. Um, There's just a fear about a recession out there um, causing a hit to demand and causing oil prices to come down as they normally would uh, in a recession. Uh, you bring up a number of good points there. Uh, one that I want to to go into more detail on is, mm -hmm. is, is the price action. So 
And I think there's there's questions about whether we're in a recession right now, whether we're mm-hmm. going to enter one. Um, I'm not right. totally sure, you know, what exactly the right definition is or or what. But so you know, you 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 touched on a couple of historical examples where in a recession the oil price had dropped by fifty percent. Mm-hmm. So you know, the considering from last year to this year, we've dropped by fifty dollars. Is that the drop, or do you foresee another fifty percent drop, or a further, let's say, aggressive drop from here if we enter this so-called recession or whatever might be ahead? Yeah, it's a it's a very good question. I I actually don't think we're going to see a huge amount of downside in oil from current levels. Um, I think you have OPEC trying to put a floor under oil prices. Um, you know, they have a lot of tied up in this Saudi Arabia in particular. Um, they have control of the oil market, more or less. Um, they have obviously a lot of you know, influence within OPEC. And I do think that um, they want to defend this current price level. Whether you want to look at you know Brent in the low to mid-70s or WTI in sort of the uh, high 60s, low 70s, I think they would like to defend that price level. I think if it's not a major recession, uh, you know, more like a 2008 type of event being a major recession, if this is more mild mild than that, I don't think you're going to see the level of demand drop off, which is going to get oil prices way below where they are right now. Um, one of the things to think about historically is that uh, historically, as I said, you know, supply, demand, and price are the fundamentals, but demand cycles for crude oil or other energy commodities, natural gas as well, tend to be short-lived. Um, the, the fact is, you know, yeah, if the U.S. goes into recession, oil demand will moderate, but uh, as soon as the economy recovers, <laughs> so will oil demand. Um, it's something we've seen throughout history. Um, you know, oil demand came down in 2008, you know, but by 2010, it was back at all fresh all-time hots uh, globally. Um, so um, what you tend to see with a demand-led uh, correction in oil prices, it's more V-shaped, whereas a supply-led correction can be more U-shaped because supply is sticky. So um, if you think about it, in the 1970s, right, oil prices started going up because OPEC was controlling their output. Oil prices didn't really start coming down again until the 80s. And they didn't come down really because of something the Fed did or you know some alteration in global oil demand. And global oil demand continued to rise throughout the 70s. Uh, they came down because a non-OPEC supply surged. You know, We had the North Slope of Alaska. We had the North Sea of the UK and Norway. Uh, you know, we had uh, Mexico's Cantarell oil field, oil fields all over the world outside of OPEC. Also, you know, Deepwater Gulf of Mexico. All these fields came on stream late 70s, early 80s. Non-OPEC production surged, and that is what really started bringing down oil prices. Not really a change in demand, but it takes time. Uh, you can't just go out tomorrow morning and say, you know, I want to produce more oil. It takes billions and billions and billions of dollars spent over many years of capital spending to bring new oil uh, production projects on stream uh, and ramp them up to full production capacity. Um, it can take five, seven, even 10 years to go from a discovery to first commercial oil production, and then years beyond that to ramp it up. And, and the problem is, is that we haven't seen significant oil um, CapEx, enough oil CapEx. Uh, and I'm talking about looking at all the big oil producers out there, state-owned companies, partly state-owned companies, and your big integrated oil companies, and your independents. We haven't seen much since 2013, 2014. That was the peak of the last cycle, um, close to um, you know upwards of, 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 of half a trillion dollars a year in spending back then. We've been down in that sort of 200 to $250 billion range 
ever since. And it's going to take an increase in, in capital spending over a period of years to actually impact that supply. Um, so I don't think there's a lot of downside to oil. And I think the supply picture remains very supportive. Uh, you go back and look at the 70s or times like that. Yeah, you see oil prices come down for a bit. But over the time, they just made a series of higher highs and higher lows because the supply picture was so supportive. And I think that's the same thing we can look, I guess, forward to um, over the next several years. It, you know, I say that because it's kind of a stagflationary kind of um, environment, um, not particularly great for economic growth or um, or inflation, but um, you know, certainly a positive for most commodities. Uh, you mentioned the capital spend and how it's been mm -hmm. basically decimated over the last decade. I think for most investors, including myself, you look at the last two years and you think about ESG Boom. and you know the electrification Boom. of the world and you say, okay, makes total sense how we've transitioned. And I'm not really sure what was driving that capital spend at the, you know, our decrease in capital spend at the, the back end of the, the, the decade. But um, moving forward, like you said, you know, a ton of money has to be put in there. But how is that money going to overcome ESG and you know the 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 advent of having to put a large large percentage of their budgets into renewables? Um, you know, is that one of those factors that you know we clearly need you know more exploration and development? But is it going to be there, or how is it going to be there? Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting, um, you know, because you see if you look at the big uh, integrated oil producers, you know, by which I mean names like. You, know, you have BP or Shell in Europe, you have Chevron and, and Exxon here in the US, uh, ExxonMobil. And you look at their their sort of variant strategies over the last few years, right? So you had, on the one hand, you had Exxon, which they do spend a lot of money on renewables, no doubt, but they have spent um, a lot of money on capital spending uh, for traditional oil and gas uh, fields. The most sort of high profile being their project in Guyana in South America. Uh, and that has been it's a world-class oil field. A lot of those wells are drilling down there um, are profitable at 30 and $35 a barrel oil. So it's a world-class project, extremely low cost. They spent uh, a ton of money down there over many years. They and their partner uh, partners, um, Hess being another one uh, of their partners there. Um, the other companies, big oil companies, kind of took a different tack. Um, Chevron continued to spend, but your European majors, BP, um, Shell, um, you know, Equinor, which is the Norwegian uh, sort of st partly state-owned company, they pivoted in favor of renewables. And um, the problem with that is that historically, it's those super majors that invest counter-cyclically. So your small independent companies, they respond to commodity prices. They're not going to go out and spend a ton of money on new projects when oil is, you know, at 35 or $40 a barrel because they're going to outspend their cash flow. They can't, it, it doesn't work for them economically. They can't borrow money at attractive enough rates to make set, for that to make sense. Exxon can't. Exxon can't. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, when oil prices were low, they invested in Guyana. Uh, lots of money on exploration development. Lots of money hiring services firms to perform the drilling work. The good news about investing counter-cyclically is you get better prices, right? Labor doesn't cost as much. You can cut better deals with the uh, uh, the countries, your host countries for all these reserves, like Guyana. Um, you can get better deals from names like, you know, Schlumberger or SLB now uh, in terms of performing service work. And by investing counter-cyclically, you, you position yourself such that in the next, next cyclical upturn, you're going to have new production coming on stream just in time to take advantage of that, right? And that means more cash flow. 
And so you can go into a bit of debt on the downslope at very attractive rates, and then you have that big um, cyclical expansion and growing production. Pretty much only Exxon did that this time around. Traditionally, they've all done that. This time it was just Exxon. They caught no end to flack for it. Um, you might remember there was a hedge fund that went after them, um, engine number one, um, that tried to, well, they ended up getting some board seats, trying to push them to do more of the European model, not to quote unquote waste money on capital spending for oil and gas developments, to put more money in renewables. And now it's starting to look like, well, Exxon is the only one that has a sensible strategy. They're the only one of those super majors that has significant growth in production of low cost oil reserves over the next few years um, to take advantage of this higher price environment. And now um, we're seeing the other companies kind of follow Exxon's lead. Um, so we've had you know, BP and Shell both come out and shifted some of their capital budget away from renewables back to traditional oil and gas investment. You had Nor the Norwegian um, uh, Equinor and the Norwegian state say they're going to develop some of their fields in the Arctic um, there, which are very promising fields, but they had not, they weren't going to go ahead with developments there because they were shifting, you know, more focus in favor of maintaining production and investing in the so-called energy transition. And I think you're going to have to see more of that. Um, the fact is, and the danger I think is that we're seeing because of ESG, um, because of this push for these major oil companies to invest more in renewables, even if they weren't, those projects aren't as economically attractive to them, um, don't produce the same level of shareholder returns, but they're getting pushed that way due to, for example, you know, company institutional investors pouring money into ESG flavor companies. And so you can't attract capital if you don't do that. So that's going to prolong the cycle. Because what it's done is it's delayed the investment cycle in new oil and natural gas developments. And you know, unfortunately, we're seeing the downside of that in many places. Um, you know, Europe on the natural gas side, of course, um, over the last you know 18 months, they've come to realize the hard way that you know, relying on one country that isn't exactly particularly friendly towards you, Russia, for most of your um, natural gas supply probably isn't a very good idea. Um, first of all, it's stupid from an economic standpoint because you know if, the, if they decide to squeeze you, they can. And secondly, from an energy security standpoint, it's not a good idea because if supply is interrupted from any country for any reason, then you're going to have a crisis, um, which they've had. Um, and I think that that is going to be the motivator for a shift there. Um, the, there's still going to be attention paid to the environment. Renewables will still see investment. Honestly, they should see some investment, but there's going to have to be a rebalancing. And some focus paid on the energy security side of the equation as much as the um, transition side of the equation. You know, it can't be all about carbon dioxide emissions and it can't be all about um, cost, but there has to be a balance there. And uh, countries are and companies are, I think, starting to shift more uh, of that balance in favor of energy security, um, oil, traditional oil and gas investments. But honestly, it's going to take time. And this has lengthened it, the cycle, because um, the supply response isn't going to be as rapid as it otherwise you know, might have been. Right. Um, I've read and I've heard a number of oil market pundits say that the, the only area for oil exploration growth um, mm -hmm. is in, is in the, the U.S. shale, uh, particularly the Permian Basin. Do you agree with that? Um, 
Well, I, I think there are a few different areas of growth. I think shale certainly could see growth in production over time. I don't think we're going to ever see, or I, it's hard to ever say, you know, never, but um, right. But uh, if that makes sense, but uh, but uh, I don't think we're going to see the, the the speed of growth we saw back in that 2012 to 2022 era, simply because shareholders don't want it. Um, you know, shareholders don't want a company. Uh, like a Pioneer Natural Resources, a big uh, Permian shale producer, they don't want them to outspend cash flow. Um, they want them to drill within their means and then return capital, share buybacks, dividends, as I said, debt, debt pay downs, you know, what little debt a company like that has left. Um, so I don't think you're going to see that sort of unrestrained growth we saw in the past, but you will see growth. You will see the majors increasingly entering into the shale more and more um, Chevron, you know, uh, entering Colorado now uh, with a recent, you know, offer to acquire um, PDC, uh, PDC Energy. Um, you know, you have some speculation. I don't think it's necessarily true right now, but it might happen in the future. Exxon being interested in a name like Pioneer, you will see more of that. They already have positions there. You will see more of that. Um, so you will see growth there. But I do think there are other areas of potential growth out there um, in terms of production capacity. You know, one of the interesting things to me is to look at what's happening in the Middle East right now. So if you go and you listen to a, a one of the service companies during their quarterly conference calls, uh, Schlumberger, which they recently renamed SLB, I guess to sound cool or something, but um, they're a big um, player in international markets, not so much here in the US, but in international market in North America, but in international markets. Um, and um, their Middle East is one of their fastest growing markets, and it's where they see the most growth over the next few years. And the reason is a lot of those countries, Saudi Arabia, UAE, et cetera, they realized that they're already, they have been the last couple of years producing at close to their full capacity. Traditionally, those countries have held some spare capacity aside, um, basically wells that they're not producing or fields that they're not producing at their full maximum rate. And that's how they control the oil market, right? Because Saudi Arabia says, okay, we're producing 10 million barrels a day, but we could produce 12. Um, so, you know, if we want to, we could flood the oil market with additional supply, push prices down, or we could retract supply and push prices back up. Um, but if you're producing right at your full spare capacity, you don't have that same uh, flexibility. You can't increase production to overcome temporary supply shortfalls or things like the Ukraine-Russia uh, war. Um, because you don't have that excess capacity there. So they're spending to build out that excess, that spare capacity. Um, they're spending a lot of money developing these new fields. Um, and if you think about it, nobody has better view than the Middle East, the Middle Eastern countries, particularly Saudi Arabia, on what global oil supply and demand are like, because they're the largest exporter. Um, and they also export and, uh, you know, uh, to all those countries that, uh, you know, are, and they also have inside knowledge on what countries like Russia are doing, what countries like India or China are doing in terms of imports. Um, and they think that they're, they need to do a lot of spending. Um, so I think you're going to continue to see places like that. Uh, there are some other niche plays out there. Um, I think Guyana, deep water generally, is an interesting area. Um, deep water Arctic. Um, I think some of the countries, for example, places like Africa might see some more um, spending in future. They do have reserves that are undeveloped. Um, they have they haven't spent enough, just like most of the rest of the world, on new exploration and development projects. Um, so I do think you could see the potential for growth there. But yeah, it's going to be difficult for global supply to keep up with demand. 
Last year, we saw the uh, U.S. government decide to release some of their strategic reserves mm-hmm. to, you know, put a cap uh, on the oil price. You know, th- that ended. And then this year, I- I've read that the- there has been some more output from the strategic reserve. Yes. My question for you is, how low can they go? Well, uh, yeah, I, it, there is a uh, there is a diminishing return, right? We're back to like mid-1980s levels now in terms of the SVR. Um, we've released at one point last year, we were releasing something like one and a half million barrels a day from that field, from that um, reserve. Uh, and um, that's obviously unsustainable. Um, you couldn't do that for more than another quarter or two before you're going to be pretty much out of oil uh, in the SPR. But before you even get to that point, you have a problem. Um, because remember, the SPR part of it is just the threat. It's a it, it, it it's an implied threat. We could release oil from the SPR if we needed to, to um, to drive down prices. Well, if you if you don't have that much oil left in there, that's no longer a valid threat. Um, it, it's a, there's no longer sort of this mutually assured destruction. To, you know, borrow a term from from the '80s, um, where you know they have this ability to manage the oil market with that reserve. Um, so I think that uh, they're very close to the level already where they're going to lose credibility um, in terms of if the price of oil were to creep higher again um, into, say, next year, and they decide to release more oil uh, from the SPR, I think you're going to have a lot of people saying, well, they're just doing that because of the upcoming election. Um, I think you're going to have people saying, um, well, this is just basically you know selling off your seed corn, right, uh, in terms of um, you know losing that that flexibility. Um, and 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 so I just don't think that's going to have um, quite the impact um, that it did last year. Um, also, the simple fact they couldn't continue like they were last year, or you know, we would run out very quickly. Um, and then I think the other thing to keep an eye on, it, from a credibility standpoint, is you know, are they ever going to actually refill it? Right. So they said, you know, when when the price of oil got below, I think it was sixty-seven or seventy, they were saying, well, we're going to start to think about refilling it. And the idea was. You know, now the price of oil is very high, but if you look at futures out, you know, a year or two down the road, they're lower priced, right? So the idea was, well, you know, we'll we'll sell oil from SPR now when the market needs it, and then we'll buy it back at a lower price in future, kind of turning the government into an oil trader. Obviously, they're not doing that. Um, even though the curve has been at times this year, every single month's futures has been below the price they said they'd like to acquire oil for the SPR. They're not doing it. Um, so that is going to invite already is, but it's going to invite more speculation in the future. Well, if you're not doing it now, when exactly are you going to do it? Are you going to end up trying to refill the SPR when oil's at 90 or $100? Um, and you know that's also, I think, a destabilizing factor. The other third aspect of that is a geopolitical one. Obviously, Saudi Arabia doesn't really like the idea of the US flooding the market with oil when they're trying to restrict their own production. Um, and so they may decide to be more aggressive cutting production because um, the U.S. is not doing what they said they were going to do in terms of buying back oil for the SPR. Um, so I think there's a lot going on there, um, but I, I don't see the SPR being the headwind for oil prices that it was last year because for, the, for, for those reasons, we don't have enough oil left in the SPR. At some point, it becomes counterproductive. Um, and also the question of credibility on the replenishing side. And you know, are they going to come out and say, Okay, now we need to buy back oil at a half a million barrels a day in the next upturn, right? Creating this headwind, uh, you know, in terms of a tailwind for demand and a headwind for the economy. Right. You mentioned earlier about security of supply. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering, in your view, is that 
is that mainly a geographical security of supply issue? Uh, like we saw what happened in Europe last year, not necessarily mm -hmm. with oil, but it's more of a natural gas thing. Yeah. Um, but so is, is it, is it, is it most a geographical issue? Yeah, it is. It's a geographical issue. Um, and primarily, um, you know, you have, uh, for example, Europe, one, the main thing that they're doing, the, the plan, if you will, is to diversify a lot of that, uh, Russian supply to the United States, right? U.S. LNG exports. Um, are expected to ramp up very aggressively um, to Europe, a lot of it, um, over the next um, few years. We have, uh, right now, the problem with LNG capacity and LNG exports is they are capped in the short run because you have to build these liquefaction terminals, and we only have so many liquefaction terminals. We're pretty much maxed out right now in terms of exporting as much as we possibly can. Um, there are more LNG facilities being under construction right now but mostly they're not going to come on stream until the end of next year, 2024, and into 2025. Um, there are not a, a lot more that are in some stage of permitting. Um, and some that are, we have, that the companies involved haven't yet made the sort of investment decision, the go or no go decision. Um, but I will, I do think you're going to see more of those developed. And so on the gas side, you know, the, the big strategy is for countries in Europe to diversify their supply away from Russia more in favor of places like the United States, you know, Australia, um, Africa, even the Middle East. Um, it's just not having all your gas come from one country is a really bad idea. Um, and I, I'm not sure why we had to learn that lesson or, or Europe had to learn that lesson, but they did. <laughs> and so and maybe this is, this is a great question for you too, because you're broad based in what you look at in terms of energy, right? Is LNG the answer? Or is is it more complicated in terms of solving that security supply issue in Europe specifically? Um, I, I mean, I think that's a huge portion of it. Uh, I, I do think you're going to see more countries in Europe, for example, Norway, maybe even the United Kingdom at some point, invest more in domestic production. Um, you know, I, I think people forget that it wasn't that long ago the UK was uh, was energy independent when it came to natural gas because of the North Sea. Um, and production's been falling pretty consistently there. Um, I don't think it's a huge, I don't think it would be a huge jump for uh, them to see growth in production again, or at least a slowing in the rate of decline in supply. Um, but, you know, the political will is not there. Um, they're doing a lot of things that I think are going to ultimately prove counterproductive, uh, such as a windfall profits tax on energy companies. You know, obviously, if you want people to do something, taxing them more is probably not the way to do it. Um, and, you know, putting a huge tax on, you know, uh, UK energy companies, uh, it, it's politically, it, I guess it looks good on paper because you're taking that money and then using it to subsidize energy to UK households, but it discourages, um, it discourages investment. Um, but I do think that ultimately could be a piece of the pie. Um, you are seeing, um, you know, British Petroleum, you are seeing Equinor in Norway, uh, put funds over in favor of you know, more traditional oil and gas development. And over time, that could have an effect. Um, E&I, which is the Italian uh, one, they are very big players in Africa and North Africa, mainly for historical reasons, proximity, et cetera. I think you see more growth in places like that. But yeah, I mean, LNG is going to have to be a big piece of the pie um, because LNG isn't just the US, though. Um, it gives those countries access to uh, supply from all over the world. Um, the U.S. is just going to be a major player, but there's also Australia, as I said, the Middle East, um, you know, places in South America and Africa as well. 
all exporting uh, via LNG. I mean, you got to remember, I mean, until what last year, middle of last year, Germany, which is the largest economy in Europe, didn't even have an LNG import terminal. Now they could import LNG from gas from, you know, Holland, right? Netherlands that came in via LNG, but they didn't have their own terminals. And um, it, one of the reasons given was it was going to take too long to get permission to build them. But of course, during crisis in our ale, it happened very, very quickly. Um, it's imagine what it, it's, a, it's sort of a, um, extraordinary what you can do if you kind of cut the red tape. And I think you're going to see more of that. And it is, I think, a major part of the solution in terms of gas. Um, and, and that's a very key commodity. Uh, and I think a commodity which, honestly, from an investment standpoint right now, I'm more favorable towards gas-focused investments than oil, although long-term, I think they're both going to be good places to be. What's your view on nuclear? Um, did, how does it fit in? I like. I think Europe's an interesting spot. Yeah. But we saw Germany close their right. their uranium or their nuclear plants in favor of coal. Um, right. So, wh- right. where do you see nuclear fitting in? Yeah, it's um, yeah. That the, what we were just talking about is it, it's almost insane. It's, it's it's sad, tragic. I don't even know what you want to call it. But closing your nuclear, your existing working nuclear plants, it probably could have been extended for decades, right, in terms of productive life. And then say you're going to replace that with renewables, which are inherently intermittent and require baseload power, um, just means you're going to end up burning more coal and natural gas. Um, So Germany is actually doing the opposite of what they said they wanted to do, which is reduce their emissions of carbon dioxide by moving away from um, carbon emitting technologies. Um, and they're in fact they're relying more heavily on the most emitting carbon technology, which is lignite coal, brown coal, uh, which they mine domestically in Germany. Um, so I, I think you're going to see more um, nuclear development. It's not in the developed world as much. Certainly in emerging markets, China, India, places like that are going to develop. Japan is even turning back. I know that I know that's not an emerging market, but they were going to close all their facilities after you know Fukushima. Um, which was at least a legitimate reason maybe to rethink nuclear, right? The accident there. Um, And now they're going the other way. They're encouraging nuclear growth again. I think it has to be part of the equation. It is expensive, especially the first few plants. Um, You know, we're building on new designs and new models than we did during the last major nuclear building boom. Um, So it's going to, those first few plants are going to be more expensive. They're going to take time to bring them into service. Um, and, you know, I've, natural gas plants, for example, might be a faster and cheaper option in the short run. But long term, nuclear is the only real baseload, large scale source of carbon free energy production. And I think that has to be part of the solution. And all the rhetoric aside, you know, look at a company like Canada's Cameco. I mean, their earnings have been outstanding. They're signing more long term supply contracts. So whatever the um, you, you know, the, the headlines we read here uh, in the West and in North America and Europe about nuclear slow to develop problems, um, demand for uranium and nuclear power is increasing. And so I think that's going to continue to be the case. What are you more bullish on in, let's say, in a three-year timeline, uranium or oil and gas? On the, In the short term, I think there's, as I said, I think there's the most opportunities in gas, mainly because it's the most out of favor right now. 
Um, you look at the price of gas here in the United States, you know, I mean, it's been uh, under $2 a million BTUs lately at, at times. And now it's recovered a little bit, but um, it's still near the lowest level it's been in the last 15 years. I mean, we're back at levels we last saw in 2020 when, you know, demand uh, for all sorts of commodities prices collapsed. Um, and so, um, you know, sentiment towards natural gas, the commodity is very poor right now. Um, there's no external force like OPEC that's going to drive up the price of, of gas in the same way that OPEC drives up the price of oil. Um, so there's none of that supply consideration that we've discussed with oil and OPEC. Um, it's a pure supply demand process, a pure price process. Um, and I think that sentiment is too negative on natural gas. Um, natural gas here in the United States, under $2 a million BTUs, literally under $3 or $350 million BTUs does not make sense longer term. Um, the way I like to look at it is that uh, you, you have to look at the cost curves. And here in the U.S., obviously, we're the world's largest producer of natural gas. Um, we're a major um, exporter of natural gas, growing exporter of natural gas, both via pipelines in Mexico and, of course, now via LNG. Um, and uh, North America generally being a huge gas producer, adding in Canada as well. And uh, prices under two cannot make sense longer term because there are some gas plays in the U.S. and Canada which you can produce profitably at that kind of level. Um, the Marcellus Shale of Appalachia in the US is probably the biggest source of US gas, shale gas supply that is profitable even with prices around you know, 230, 250, which is still a bit of where we are right now. But um, the next ones up the, uh, the cost curve, like the Haynesville Shale of Louisiana and Texas, which is a major source of swing supply um, because um, it, it, it has the capacity to produce a lot more gas than it is right now, but it does need a little bit higher gas prices to make sense economically. So what tends to happen with gas in the U.S. is if the market needs more gas, the price needs to go up to $4 or so, because that's what incents the Haynesville producers to actually start producing more gas. If the market doesn't want gas, then the price has to drop below that you know, $3 range because it starts taking that Haynesville supply offline. So we're hovering down here under three, Haynesville supply is going to start dropping. We're already seeing producers in that area dropping rigs. Um, we saw, we've seen the big names, you know, Southwestern, Chesapeake, for example, cut rigs, Comstock, which is a fairly big player there, cut rigs. But we're also seeing the private companies purportedly cutting rigs. You can see that in the, the Baker Hughes rig count. Um, so I think that um, there's a fundamental disconnect there. Gas prices cannot remain where they are. Uh, because there won't be enough supply. Um, you're only going to have the lowest cost supply, um, you know, fields in the U.S. producing at current prices. And that's just not enough gas to meet even our domestic demand, let alone exports um, to via LNG. So gas prices have to recover. I think the market also realizes that at some level, because if you look at the futures curve for gas, you know, they, uh, their futures for delivery every month of every year, right? Out for years in the future. Um, if you look at the gas curve right now, you know the front of it is near two. But if you go out early next year, it's 354. If you go out the end of 2024, 2025, when the market expects LNG to start coming in, you know it's over four for many months. Um, so right now, most of the gas companies that I follow and that we follow in the service, um, they're pricing gas kind of remaining in that three dollar range, plus or minus long term. Um, whereas the futures market's telling us that's not likely to be the case. Um, and so at current prices, I think that's a huge opportunity over sort of the next, um, 
you know, 12 to 24 months. Um, beyond that, um, I think um, oil is an interesting opportunity. I think that's also an opportunity. And I think uranium is an opportunity. Um, so I'd say probably natural gas is what I'm most excited about on the very short term over oil. Um, and probably over uranium too. Uranium is a little bit smaller market, so um, it tends to be more volatile. And I think sentiment can be can swing widely in a market like this. In other words, if we go into recession, you know, people are going to start saying, you know, that's going to mean that you know a lot of nuclear capacity isn't going to get built. Um, but I think that um, you know, gas in the short term and then longer term, I think all three. Um, I, I right now would prefer to buy, and what we've been um, uh, um, recommending is to focus on the gas producers over the oil producers. Uh, and then over the intermediate term on the oil side, I would look at some of the services companies very closely. Um, these are not companies that produce oil, but they're companies that provide the services needed to explore for and develop new sources of oil and, you know, and gas. And if you think about it, you know, what we're talking about earlier with the need for all this new investment, that is basically money in the pockets of the services companies. I mean, where that money goes to develop these new plays is to the services companies. So companies like SLB being our favorite, but there are other companies out there, you know, FMC Technip, um, symbol FTI, does a lot of subsea equipment. I think that's a really interesting name on any kind of dip. But um, I would say that, you know, gas in the short term and maybe longer term, look at that oil services and also things like uranium. Very good. Um, in in terms of uh, top picks or names that you mm -hmm. would like to share with us, you know, sure. can you give us a couple names. Sure. Uh, on the gas side, um, the lowest cost, as I said, uh, source of U.S. natural gas is going to be your Marcellus Shale of Appalachia. So producers there, um, uh, my favorite or our favorite has been EQT. Symbol is you know creatively EQT. Um, that company, um, it, it's got very low cost of production um, because simply because it, it um, producing gas in the Marcellus, the wells are very prolific, um, and you don't need to spend as much capital to drill wells. Um, so if you look at the what I do is I, I I I look at the company's guidance and I look at their history as well, and I look at things like you know how much capital spending do they spend, how much do they spend a year in drilling new wells. You know, what are their uh, lease operating expenses, which are basically um, uh, things like uh, maintaining existing wells, maintaining existing infrastructure? How much does it cost them to transport gas to market? Uh, what are their realized prices like? Are they selling at um, the same prices you would get on Henry Hub in Louisiana on the Gulf Coast? Or are they selling at discounted local prices in places like Pennsylvania? Um, and I, I look at all those different costs and add them up. And I look at a name like EQT, and based on their guidance for the rest of this year, um, their break even in terms of funding all their CapEx, uh, funding all of their transportation costs, all their other expenses related to developing wells is like $2.40 a thousand cubic feet. Um, very difficult to beat. The price of gas right now is kind of around there, but the price of natural gas for delivery in you know, November, December is, is you know above three fifty. dollars So they're going to generate free cash flow this year even with gas prices where they are. The other thing is they do hedge their production, some of their production, uh, and they already locked in prices last year that are much higher than they are today. Um, so I think you know that's a good name on the low end of the cost curve. Um, the other area that I'm very excited about is Haynesville Shale. Um, the Haynesville Shale basically straddles Louisiana and Texas, the border. Mostly it's in Louisiana. Most of the development's in Louisiana right now. 
Now, if you think about that, Appalachia is you know way up here on the um, East Coast. You have places like West Virginia, Pennsylvania, you know Ohio, right? It's a long way to the Gulf Coast, which is where all the LNG terminals are located. Um, you know, it's it's a, a geographically long distance. It's not the easiest thing to permit new pipeline capacity in the United States right now. Um, you know, there's it's a lot of political mess. You can get tied up in the courts for many years. So getting gas from Appalachia to the Gulf Coast, there's constraints on how much you can act, you can send there. So in a strong, so in a low gas price environment, those companies can still make money because the cost of production is so low. In a rising gas cost environment, they're less able to take advantage of that because if they they can't increase their production um, too quickly, or they just have no way to get that gas to market um, where it's actually in demand on the Gulf Coast, um, they get it gets trapped locally. So the Haynesville being in Louisiana, it's very close to the Gulf Coast. You might even say on the Gulf Coast, right? So a lot of that gas can get transported to these LNG terminals in places like Louisiana and Texas for export. Um, so I think that's a major advantage longer term. It gives them the ability to grow their production rapidly to take advantage of the LNG market. Um, and um, as I said, you know, a lot of these terminals are expected to start up end of next year, 2025, 2026, um, very rapid growth in capacity. Those companies are going to benefit the most. They have the best ability to ramp up production and uh, the, the, the lowest transportation costs. They tend to earn higher prices for every uh, thousand cubic feet produced because they're selling into that Henry Farm hub market rather than you know locally in Pennsylvania. Um, so um, Haynesville, I think, is a very interesting play. Right now, some of those companies are going to struggle to, to generate free cash flow um, because unless they have a lot of hedges in place, um, price of gas is too low for the Haynesville to make much sense right now. But I think longer term, that's a great place to look. Um, the names I like there, Chesapeake. thing I like about Chesapeake Energy, symbol CHK, they have Haynesville and Marcellus. They're a dual basin um, producer. So when gas prices are low, they can kind of lean more on uh, Marcellus, which is a, produces a lot of free cash flow. They can use it as a sort of source of cash flow. When the price is rising, um, they can you know push the accelerator a bit in the Haynesville, ramp up production there, and take advantage of it. Um, so that gives them some flexibility. Um, overall, their break-even costs are kind of as you'd expect, right? In the Marcellus, they're you know low to mid twos, and the Haynesville it's three twenty-five or so. So the average is somewhere in the high twos to around three. Um, and they have a lot of hedges in place. Uh, most of their gas production over the next few quarters is hedged at much higher prices um, because they took out those hedges late last year. Um, so that gives them the ability to generate free cash flow um, straight through the rest of this year and in the next year. Um, I think in a, in, a, in a sort of more normal market environment, looking at say the 2024 strip price, the average price for delivery next year, um, you know they can generate upwards of one and a half, um, maybe as much as $1.75 billion a year in free cash flow. Um, they are, they, you, they pay a, a variable dividend based on the amount of free cash flow they generate. So they have a base dividend, and then on top of that, they layer on a variable dividend. Um, and they have a stock buyback plan. Um, so you benefit directly as a shareholder, which I like, in their growth in free cash flow, um, because they literally pass it through to you, either as cash, as a dividend, or by you know buying back the stock and um, you know pushing down the, uh, the share count. Um, so I, that's a really interesting name. Um, at the current low variable dividend because of low gas prices, they're still yielding north of 5%. 
in a good market, they can probably yield with their variable and base dividend north of 15%. Um, you know, I, this is a stock trading in the 70s, low 80s. Um, you know, I think it's worth north of $120 a share. Just if gas prices do what the futures curve is going to, it says they're going to do. Um, and then if you want to, looking a little bit farther out the risk curve, but also I think potentially even more upside in terms of price appreciation, um, a name we like is Southwestern Energy. As I said, it's a riskier name. It's a lower price stock. It's a $5 stock. They're a producer in the in the um, uh, Haynesville as well um, uh, um, and, and the Marcellus. So they're like, like Chesapeake. They're a dual basin producer. Costs are a little bit higher, mainly because they have a little bit more debt. Um, but uh, again, um, they've done a lot of hedging. Um, so they've locked in uh, uh, much higher gas prices to protect them near term. You know, in a normal gas price environment, I mean, the stock could easily be worth just on a, I, what I did like to do is I look at a free cash flow based on the calendar strip price, the average price for futures next year. So you can just look on NYMEX, they're all traded, right? You know, what's the price of gas for delivery in January, February, March, April, May of next year? And it's not just a theoretical thing because they can hedge at something like that price right now. Um, so, you know, I, I think a lot of people I talk to, a lot of individual investors I talk to, they say, you know, why would I want to buy a gas producer with gas at 250? And gas is really not at 250, right? Because anybody, nobody is selling gas at 250 right now. Um, they already hedged that production in most cases quarters ago. And they're selling a lot of gas at in December 2023 prices, which around 350 or four. So, um, you know, a, com a company like Southwestern that is hedged, uh, reasonably near term can protect their free cash flow longer term. You know, that's a stock that could be worth north of 10, just looking at the kind of free cash flow they could generate um, over the next several years at that strip price for, for gas. Um, so that's the gas side. The oil side, as I said, um, the theme we're focusing on right now is what we call offshore and overseas. Um, shale is extremely important, as we discussed, in terms of production. But right now, um, U.S. shale on the services side, the activity level is not going to be that much. Um, the reason being is that these companies are trying to preserve their free cash flow. Um, so they're not going to drill aggressively with oil where it is today. They're going to generate free cash flow. Uh, many of them can make free, can generate free cash flow at 40 or 45, right? So they're going to generate plenty of free cash flow, but they're not going to go out and try to increase their production into a market like this. They're not going to do that unless they feel that the market is really undersupplied and OPEC is already producing pretty close to their full capacity, then they may you know, accelerate their investment. Um, but um, that's not great news for the services companies that focus on the U.S. market or North America. Outside the U.S., spending is driven by long-term projects. So projects like Guyana or these projects in the Middle East, these countries and companies they don't base their decision based on the current price of oil. They do something like say, okay, well, a long, long term, we think oil prices are going to remain above 50 bucks a barrel. What makes sense at that price point? And they're not going to cancel those projects or even delay them because the price of oil goes from 80 to 60. Um, they might, if it goes to 30, I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, so um, that's a, a really nice base of projects and backlogs for these services firms. Um, our favorite there, as I said, is SLB. Um, they're the most, it used to be called Schlumberger for, I think, over a century. They changed their name to SLB for whatever reason. The symbol is SLB. Um, and they have a lot of focus on international markets over North America. They're 
operations in North America are mainly deep water, so Gulf of Mexico. And projects there are not like shale. They're really more of um, uh, they're they're more like an international project. They're based on long term economics, um, supply and demand. Um, the thing I try to like to remind people of is that shale is different than the rest of the energy business. Um, shale is more of a manufacturing business, right? Um, if you want to produce more oil, you can go out and drill more wells. It's pretty much that simple. The resource is widely distributed. You don't have to build a lot of infrastructure to drill additional wells. You just have to pay whatever it costs for you to drill the type of well that you drill in your particular asset. Um, so um, you can be more responsive to commodity prices. Um, if the price of the well goes up, you can respond to that in a few in weeks, right? International companies they can't do that. Um, you know, Guyana, Exxon's been investing in there for seven eight years now, like really seriously investing in infrastructure and the billions of dollars are already sunk there. Um, this is a much more stable, long-term um, type of deal. Um, they're looking to build out all this infrastructure before they see dollar one of cash flow. Um, and then for many, many years, they're going to have a nice plateau or or growth in production, steadyish production for many years in the future. Um, so um, we prefer the companies that focus on uh, the international right now, offshore and overseas. Um, within the oil producers, I would look at mains that either have very low cost of production and preferably some sort of catalyst, right? Something that's going to make the stock potentially or cause a re-rating in the stock valuation. Um, so in the U.S., I mean, I like the lowest cost producers here in the U.S. shale. Pioneer, name like Pioneer, I think makes sense. It's going to take you're not going to see, I don't think, the same kind of gains you could see in the gas producers the next 12 to 18 months. But long term, I think buying Pioneer, symbol PXD, is a good play. Um, and I, you know, I think look at a name like Hess. Um, Hess is um, symbol HES. They're actually they have operations in the U.S. in the Bakken shale, which is a little bit higher cost play. Um, it's free cash flow positive at current prices. But the more interesting thing is they have a stake in that Guiana project with Exxon. So Exxon's the operator. They're an investor in the project. Um, and uh, they've been spending money to meet their share of the capital spending needs to build out the infrastructure there. Over the next couple of years, as production ramps up, Yana is going to go from a cash sink for them into a source of free cash flow. So I would look at a name like that. Um, on uranium, which we talked about as well, uh, I would look at a name like Cameco. Um, just a hot in this market, I like to focus when it, we're still kind of in that stage of um, people aren't really sure about it. Um, there's some questions about nuclear still. You know, prices are starting to recover. I think we're in their sort of early stage of the cycle. I like to focus on the biggest names, and then as we the cycle develops, I like to move down the market cap curve to some sort of less uh, well-known names. But for now, um, you know, I like Canada's Cameco. Um, trades uh, in Canada under the symbol CCO and here in the U.S. under the symbol, the ADRs trade CCJ. Very good. Elliot, it's been an absolute pleasure. How can people follow you on social media and where can they find out more about your newsletter? Okay. Um, well, uh, the newsletter that's probably most relevant to what we discussed today is um, called Energy and Income Advisor. Um, and I, uh, I, co I co-founded it with my colleague, Roger Conrad, who focuses a lot more on the income yield side of the business, uh, whereas I focus more on the producers and, and stocks like that. Um, it's energyandincomeadvisor.com is the website. Um, and another way uh, that 
I have a Substack. Uh, I have a column on Substack called the Free Market Speculator. It's at Substack.com, um, and that is actually free. Uh, I put up free commentary there, a lot about energy, but also other things, economics, other market sectors. Um, I put up free commentary there twice a week, um, and so that's a good way to, to sort of follow my latest thinking on energy markets because I post a lot there. And again, uh, there is a paid component to it, but most of the commentary is is totally free. Um, so you can look it up there at substack.com. Excellent. Thanks again, Elliot. And we'll talk to you again soon. Look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.